today's episode is sponsored by Warby Parker, eyewear with a purpose. Hey y'all, welcome to Truth Table, Midwives of Culture for Grace and Truth. I'm McKemini, and this table is built by Black women and for Black women. So welcome to the table, sisters. Uh, This is a special Good Friday episode for you all entitled The Seven Last Words of Jesus. We thought it would be good that um, during these this time of quarantine and this um, coronavirus pandemic that we would release uh, to you all. The seven last words of Jesus, which um, with with Truth Table and friends, um, we had the honor of putting together these messages in the past, and we it really has blessed uh, our sisters at the table, and so we thought we would go ahead and release it to you all, as we know that this is a very unique Lent period. It's a very unique Holy Week, as we are all quarantining in our own homes and experiencing church. Um, digitally. And I'm I'm sure for many of us, it's the first time we're ever going to experience Good Friday uh, and uh, Resurrection Sunday digitally um, and not in the house of the Lord uh, as we are accustomed to. So we wanted to release this episode to you all uh, to encourage you to look to Jesus, um, the one who suffered for us at Gethsemane, and died on the cross and rose for us, uh, for our transgressions, and who's returning uh, for those who are waiting for him. So Christina will give much more of the historical significance of the seven last words um, in the Black church tradition and why we decided to do it. We are joined by Natasha Sistrunk Robinson. We're joined by Kim Cash Tate. Uh, Mazare Rogers also joins us. And we also have Reverend Nicole Mass. Martin with us at the table, and of course, Michelle, Christina, myself, uh, giving the last seven words of Jesus. So enjoy this episode and be blessed. Hey, everyone. My name is Christina Edmondson, and I'm one of the co-hosts of Truth's Table. I get the privilege of talking to you about the starting phrase of the seven last words. And here we will find in Luke's gospel, these words, two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. And when they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them. For they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. Hear Jesus' words. Father, forgive them. For they do not know what they are doing. You know, it's often in deep, deep suffering. And deep pain and deep loss and deep confusion Being at the very bottom, we find out what is at the very bottom of who we are. Our core identities are revealed 
and our most trying, stretching, grueling moments. What am I really about? What really makes me tick? What is at my core? What is my foundation? What do I really care about? And when all is stripped away, when not only is Christ back against the wall, metaphorically, his back literally is against the cross, we find that what is on Christ's mind, what is revealed at his deepest moment of suffering, is his character and his mission. It's an amazing mission. It's a mission that is set on extending grace. It's a mission that is revealed in these words, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. His back, not just against the wall, but up against the cross. We see the them is on his mind. And who are the them? Well, when we look at the text, we can immediately think about those who could be around Jesus at the moment, having full knowledge that many of the male disciples have fled, looking off and even seeing his own mother's face as he is there, risen from the ground, nude, bloodied, beaten, and dying. He is between two criminals. He is with so many others, soldiers and centurions. In other words, there's a great likelihood for there to be many thems in that category. But I am inclined to believe that the them in his statement, Father, forgive them, are those who know that they are wrong. See, the cross represents history's most traumatic event. And it's a traumatic event that pleads, that cries out for belief. Belief in this innocent man who takes on the weight of the world and gives up his life that is fully accepted by God and he rises again. This powerful story reveals the trauma of the gospel. And we, if we find ourselves in the number as the them, well, we're the ones that need forgiveness. We are the ones that were on Christ's mind. I was on Christ's mind. And you were on Christ's mind. We are the them that he cries out to his father and says, but they don't know what they're doing. And the truth is that you and I, if we are in the them, cannot even fully comprehend and fully fathom the holistic beauty and divinity of God upon the cross dying on our behalf. We can't even fully grasp the depths of what our sin has done. The cataclysmic, the cosmic, earth-shaking reality of sin. It is beyond our understanding. Forgive them, because 
They don't know what they've done. And they don't know what they're doing. And even right now, when you and I fall short, as we like to say, when we sin against thrice holy God, you and I rarely know the extent and the depths of the indecency and the disrespect and the unbelief of our own pet sins. And yet, that same Jesus, that same Jesus who lay dying on a cross, is the now the resurrected Jesus who hasn't stopped interceding for us. He's still interceding for the them. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Oh, and I thank you, Jesus. Because pre and post cross, you are still uttering those words. And while we may not have the them on our mind, you do. And may we forever be thankful and grateful that at your bottom, with your back against the cross, you had the them on your mind. It's Michelle, and I am very excited to be at the table with my sisters and our friends to talk about the seven last words of Jesus. When Jesus speaks, we listen. This is what the Lord has to say. This is from Luke chapter 23. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him. Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. I am struck by multiple elements in this text. But as they say in the black church, I I won't be before you long. And I mean that today. I will strive to not be before you long. I'm struck by the authority of Jesus to suffer so much and to exert the energy to save as he is suffering. I'm struck by the humility of our Savior, which is bold enough to leave his haters in ambivalence. It's true, we see, that the ambivalence that Jesus shows and that we do not know that he spoke a word to the one mocking him and then demanding that he too be saved. It shows that there's little help to those who mock the innocent. I'm also struck by the humility that is seen in the ambition of one 
who would relish the opportunity for well-being. That is the criminal who not only defends Jesus' honor, but who says to him humbly, remember me when you enter your kingdom. This is an ambition, not just for the well-being of self, but for the well-being of the one who he knows is other than self. Most of the work that I dedicate time to when I'm at home in St. Louis is in an ethic called 21st century abolition. This ethic abolition doesn't come without boundaries. We lose when we lie. We suffer when we steal. But we're also called to guard the innocent who are harshly mistreated and unjustly accused. And we must strategize to help everyone who hungers for healing. Jesus took on the form of the feeble and then indeed lived in complete perfection. This in order to shield victims of systems of oppression. He also, in the same life of perfection, became sin to save vicious, callous people because there was a way out. There is a way out, and it is him, the one who lived perfectly, who died unjustly at the hands of those who mocked him, is proof that there is a way out. And so I reflect, I think I find myself again in the swift <laughs> reflection on this text, but long, long suffering of our Lord. That those of us who find ourselves survivors, victims of heinous crimes, victims, victims who suffer, by the sinful acts of others. The truth is that our deliverer is not. If you, like me, are crucifying yourself in your heart every Good Friday, every time you read this text thinking, I, I am living just reward for my deeds. The pain that I'm experiencing was due to me because I am vicious, I am sinful then remember the power of Jesus to exert energy even as he suffers death to stop and to speak words of salvation to you. There was no greater humility for this person, the one who was ambitious for the well-being of the Savior and in turn asked that he might be remembered from one who was not guilty like himself. And there is no greater love than the answer Jesus gave, a promise not simply of perfection and paradise, but the promise that the Savior, the perfect one, the one who fears nobody and has the power to change everybody, there is no greater love than the promise that he would be with him. That is our song today. In our sorrow, in our sinfulness, in suffering, the due reward of our deeds. Look to your Savior, to your Savior. Ask 
for remembrance and listen to him as he promises his perfect presence. I'm Natasha Sistrunk Robinson, a friend of the table and most importantly, a daughter of the King Jesus, whom I love. It is my honor and privilege to share with you um, one of the seven last words of Jesus. I'm going to read from the NIV translation, John 19, um, verses 25 through 27. And it reads, near the cross of Jesus stood his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Cleophas, and Mary Magdalene. And Jesus, when he saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, dear woman, some translations say, behold, woman, your son. In this one, it says, dear woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, that is John, it says here is your mother. And from that time on, this disciple, John, took her into his home. Near the cross stood his mother, Mary, and a whole bunch of women. And what I love about this part of the seventh last words is that we see Jesus not just as God, but we see Jesus in his full humanity, caring about the human needs of his mother. One of the things we learn in the Old Testament and in this particular culture is that women were often, especially when they were widowed, they were destitute, but their value uh, their value was attached to the men that were in their lives. So a woman gained value by getting married. She gained more value or, or roles in society as she had more children. And so um, particularly more male sons. And so um, it was the responsibility if she were to become a widow, which we believe that Mary was at this time, that her male sons would then take care of her. Her male sons were her, were her um, insurance policies. And so Jesus being the first male, the oldest son, did not negate his responsibility to his earthly mother when he was on the cross suffering for us. And that is so critically important because we see here Jesus as he prepares to transition, he's saying that he's going and he said to us by then that he was going to prepare a place for us to prepare a home, in fact. He was concerned about his mother having a home. He was concerned about his mother having a home. And so what we see here is uh, John, who was among Jesus' three closest friends, John, James, and Peter, they were allowed to see things and do things with Jesus that the other 12, the other nine of the 12 disciples were not able to do. And so we know that John has receipts, so to speak, that John has proven himself faithful, that John constantly refers to himself in this gospel as the one that Jesus loves. He is the beloved of God. And so Jesus, in picking John, is saying, I understand that you are faithful, you are loyal, you're responsible. Um, I'm giving you a huge responsibility. In fact, I'm passing on my responsibility to you. And why is this important? Because when Jesus was arrested, John was the 
only one that remained faithful until the very end. We know that Peter denied Jesus three times and fled. And we know that all the other male disciples fled because they were in fear of their lives as Jesus was preparing to suffer a horrendous death of a criminal. But not John. John was faithful and loyal until the very end. And John, the only male, was accompanied by a faithful band of women. So John in his gospel lists a few women here. Matthew lists a few other women, including Salome. And then we also know that Mark lists a, uh, a list of women that follow Jesus until the end. And so when Jesus is, is saying, behold, behold, woman, your son, He's given John responsibility, which is significant and huge. And he's also saying that I have care and concern for my mother. But it's noted in many commentaries that Jesus does not call her mother. He calls her woman. And so there's debate about whether this is disrespectful or not. I am not as concerned about that. I'm concerned because today I'm speaking to primarily the targeted audience is Black women. And so Jesus says to this woman, here is your son. He says to this woman, I have made provision for you. He says to this woman that I see you. He says to this woman that I have care and concerns about the things that care and that you care and are concerned about. And I will not leave you in this earth alone and destitute. That is a critical message that he gives to his mother, Mary, even though she had other children. We know this when we read the book. She had other children. And not only that, she had other sons. But Jesus said, I will not negate my responsibility to you. I have a spiritual concern for your life, and I also have a physical concern for your well-being. And in that, he makes provision for this woman. So you, Black women, you who suckle nations at your breast, you who follow Jesus until the very end, you who are consistent in your prayers and in your suffering and in your perseverance, know that Jesus looks down from the cross and he says, I'm acquainted with your suffering. And he says that I have made provision here. I'm the son. And I am going to prepare a home for you but I will ensure that you are not left without a home. I am your son. Behold, woman, your son. Warby Parker was founded with a rebellious spirit and a lofty goal to create boutique quality eyewear at a revolutionary price point. They offer eyeglasses, sunglasses, contact lenses, and eye exams, and they're committed to providing exceptional vision care online and in stores. And for every pair of glasses sold, Warby Parker distributes a pair of glasses to someone in need. Did you know that almost 1 billion people worldwide lack access to glasses? 
This means that 15% of the global population can't effectively learn or work, which is crazy because glasses were invented 700 years ago. So Warby Parker partners with nonprofits to ensure that for every pair of glasses they sell, a pair is distributed to somebody who needs them. Their glasses start at $95, including prescription lenses, and sunglasses, progressives, and blue light lenses are also available. So I took the quiz at warbyparker.com table, and I ordered a home try-on kit. I invited a few of my friends to join me, and we all got maybe too excited to share all of the options for our perfect pair with all of our friends. The glasses all looked great. They're high quality, they're sleek and functional. And it was easy to use the home try-on program. We really appreciated being able to try on the glasses before purchasing without having to go to a store or play guessing games with those virtual tools. So all my eyewear lovers, I hope you're listening and I hope that you will try Warby Parker's free home try-on program. You get to order five pairs of glasses to try at home for free for five days and there's no obligation to buy. This home try-on kit ships for free and it includes a prepaid return shipping label. So go to warbyparker.com slash table and get your five pairs of glasses to try at home for free. My name is Akemini Uwan. I am the co-host of Truth's Table, uh, and I consider it a privilege and honor to be able to open up God's word with you all. Uh, the saying of Jesus that I had the honor of teaching on is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is found uh, in both the Gospel of Mark and Matthew. Um, specifically, it's found in Mark chapter 15, verses 34, I'm sorry, verse 34, and in Matthew Chapter 27, verse 46. I will read the scripture from Matthew 27, verse 46, and I'm reading from the ESV. And it reads, And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The hour has come. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ's life is on the cusp of a gruesome death. All of his life, his words, his miraculous deeds, and his obedience to the Father, his miraculous birth, all of this led him to this very hour, the time of his impending death. One chapter before this one, in Matthew 26, verses 36 through 46, uh, it describes the agony Jesus, um, that Jesus grappled with in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus was full of agony because he knew what what, what awaited him on the cross. Oh, but it's one thing to know what must be done, and it is another to do it. It was his knowing what had to be done that caused him to pray to God the Father three times, saying, My Father, If it is possible, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Jesus, our precious precious Lord and Savior, filled with great agony to the point 
of sweaty blood. As the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22, verse 44 records, the Father would not let the cup of suffering pass. Jesus had to drink it to the dregs, and drink it he did. Eli, Eli, Laba Sabatani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? These are the words that our Savior exclaimed in excruciating pain moments before he drew his last breath. And lest you think this was said for dramatic effect or that it was merely metaphorical, it was not. It was literal. For the first and only time in eternity, Jesus was separated from God the Father. Why? Well, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, for it says, our, for our sake, he made him, he, God, the Father, made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Galatians 3, 13 teaches us that Christ became a curse for us, cur saying, cursed is everyone hung on a tree. God the Father put his wrath on Jesus. The sins of those uh, who, who would come to faith or who actually came to faith and those who will come to faith in Jesus were put on Jesus at the cross. Our past, present, and future sins, not in part, but the whole. This is what caused a brief but cataclysmic separation, Jesus from God the Father. Their fellowship was broken because God's eyes are too pure to look upon sin, according to Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 13. And in that moment, Jesus became a sin offering for us. And because of that, God the Father looked away. This was a fulfillment of what the psalmist David wrote in Psalm 22, verse 1. Jesus Christ, the greater David, the suffering servant, screamed, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus' brief separation from God had a cosmological impact as the verses, uh, as the verses after God's divine abandonment of Jesus caused an earthquake. But the verses before also uh, described literal darkness over the land. Oh, but that's not all. You see, there is a redemptive impact that we are all partakers of as God's children. And it's a present reality for us. It is this. This is the present reality for us. This is the promise. Because God forsook his only begotten son, we will never, ever be forsaken. To be forsaken by God is a theological impossibility because Jesus was forsaken for us. He bore the full weight of our sin and was forsaken because of it. Now, there are times that we have felt and we'll, we will feel forsaken by God. But our feelings are not facts, sis. So unbow your head, sister. The fact is that Jesus was forsaken 
and our union with Christ unites us to Christ in blessings and sufferings. And although we are pierced with many pangs in this fallen world, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Sisters, you and I will never, ever be forsaken. But our God is so good and gracious that he has given us language in Psalm 22 and here in Matthew 27, 46 and and, and Mark um, chapter 15 so that we can repeat these words when we feel this way. Oh, but beloved, bear this in mind and treasure this truth in your heart. We will never know how much it costs to see our sins upon our bloody and bruised Savior. Our sins were visited upon Him. We will never, ever know. Thanks be to God. I'm Nicole Martin, and I'm a friend of the table, but most importantly, I'm a friend of Jesus. When Jesus speaks, we listen. Hear now the words of John 19, verse 28. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished, and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. I just want to share from the topic, stay thirsty, friends. He had been hanging on the cross for several hours, and now Jesus declared his thirst. But he was more than just thirsty. Jesus was dehydrated. Dehydration is what happens when your body loses more water than it takes in. From the tears shed in the garden, to the blood and water lost in the beatings, to the sweat that dripped from his brow, Jesus' body had given out more than he could possibly take in. He was fully God and fully man, and in this moment, Jesus spoke of his thirst. On the one hand, the statement comes as perhaps the most human statement of them all. I'm thirsty. The reality of his dehydrated body was so real that no one could deny this fact. His physical thirst was so obvious that the soldiers tried to give give him what they drank, because they figured when you're thirsty, anything will do. Yet on the other hand, this statement is also extraordinarily divine, hinting at a thirst that goes deeper than the flesh and reaches into the soul. Yes, Jesus' thirst was critical in so many ways. And in this invitation of a Good Friday, Jesus invites us to come closer, to hear and smell and taste and understand this thirst. Because at the core of the invitation of the words of Jesus is an invitation to embrace what it means to suffer as Jesus suffered. And in this invitation, in these words, Jesus invites us to learn what it means to live thirsty. To live thirsty is to live with a level of desperation and desire that only God can quench. To live thirsty is to live with an urgency for God's kingdom to come and God's will to be done. To live thirsty is to live like Jesus. Because this statement on the cross teaches us that you cannot be a disciple and not have thirst. But I wonder sometimes if if maybe we've forgotten our thirst. 
surrounded by creature comforts and lulled by our own religiosity, I wonder sometimes if we've lost our thirst. Like the soldiers who sat in the heat of the day drinking sour wine, which made them only more thirsty, I wonder if we've taught ourselves to drink from fountains that do not satisfy. I wonder if we've sold ourselves into the rhetoric that urges us to obey our thirst, all the while lulling us into this sugary, syrupy, sweet coma of sin. We've lost our thirst perhaps when we don't care about the number of young adults who leave the faith. We've lost our thirst when the pain of the world doesn't seem to bother us. We've lost our thirst when our own sins and the sins of those around us don't grieve us. We've lost our thirst when the injustices of our nation don't make us sorrowful. And when believers lose their thirst, they cease to be salt and light in the world. When the church loses her thirst, she cannot bear witness of God's truth in the world. When nations lose their thirst, they fail to show compassion, the compassion of Christ for those most vulnerable. And when we, when you and I lose our thirst for God, we risk losing our very souls. So how can we cling to the cross and learn to live thirsty? How can we become more like Christ by thirsting in significant ways? I want to suggest that you can live thirsty when you stay in touch with the dry places. For some, the dry places are right where you live. You may be experiencing dry spells in your marriage, dry spells with your friends, dry spells in your relationship with God. For some, the dry places are in your neighborhood. They're dry spells of youth needing mentors, dry spells of victims needing safety, dry spells of poverty and loss. And still, for some, the dry places are in the world around you. Dry spells in urban cities, or dry spells in foreign countries, or even dry spells in the church. But rather than running from the dry spells, Jesus ran to them. He ran to them when he descended from heaven to be born on earth. Jesus ran to the dry spaces when he hung around synagogues teaching truth to the wise. Jesus did not flee the dry places. He ran to them when he spoke to the women, when he healed the broken, and when he raised the dead. And because Jesus stayed in touch with the dry spaces, you and I have a chance to be touched by the only one who can quench our thirst. And so I say to you, stay thirsty, my friends. Stay thirsty for the ways and the will of God. Stay thirsty for the heartbeat of the Lord. Stay thirsty for God's truth. Stay thirsty for salvation. Stay thirsty for God's wisdom. And when the dryness of this land attempts to steal and suck dry our hope, stay thirsty for the cross, knowing that he who died for us promised that when we go to him, we will never thirst again. Let's stay thirsty for Christ. God bless you. Hello, good people, and welcome to Truth Table and Friends, Seven Last Words of Jesus. I'm Mazare. I'm a spoken word poet, and I'm a friend of the table. But most importantly, I'm just a friend of Jesus. <laughs> and we believe that when Jesus speaks, we should listen. So while Jesus was hanging on the cross, nailed to this cross, taking the punishment for the sins that you and I have both committed, he said something. He said, it is finished. I'm gonna read John 19, 32, so you can get the fuller picture. So it says, when Jesus had received the sour wine or vinegar, he said, it 
is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now, let's pan out a little bit and get the whole story, right? So here's a little bit of spoken word for you. The Genesis. The good old days when everything was bliss. Back in the Garden of Eden with Eve and Adam. Eaten apples laced with evil and good. It's understood that the poison was in the knowledge, not the fruit. But since knowledge is power, Adam and Eve were endowed with a new ability to shut the garden down with the evil they had found. So they had to be evicted. So God lovingly kicked them out of the trees. But when they hit the ground, they had the wind knocked out of them, which left them breathless. Bereft of the life God had breathed into Adam's nasal passages, spiritual lungs flattened. No CPR from a CMA could resuscitate these corpses. Adam and Eve couldn't breathe, but they could stand up and walk into the dawn of the dead, the first death walkers walking after the lusts of their flesh, having chosen juice still dripping from their chins. The good having chosen to listen to hissing serpents. The very good and their children choosing to keep licking the once only bitten, now rotten apple core. Something must be done. Fast forward to Gethsemane. The garden where Jesus prayed the night Judas betrayed him, he planted a poisonous kiss that led to the spread of a shroud of darkness over the sun, the one in the sky and the one crucified, Jesus Christ, a superman, son of God soon to save sinful man. But before this eclipse, sweat blood dripped from Jesus's face to the ground as he groaned in agony. Father, take this cup from me. It's too much for me. It overflowed with waterfalls of God's fury at our perfidy, our unfaithfulness. Someone had to pay for this. So Jesus drank every drop. The angry mob who accused him of blasphemy seized him and plastered him to a sinner's cross. Someone held the nails. Someone raised the hammer and someone pounded them into his open hands. They spit on him and jammed a crown of thorns into his skull. He was full of every pain imaginable when he managed to go, it is finished. While his work was done, the story was still underway. Now, today is Good Friday. You're going to have to tap into the significance of Saturday and Sunday to really get the fuller story. But I just want us to focus on the fact that when Jesus said it is finished, I believe he was saying he finished the work that God gave him to do. Jesus, as the son of man, said he came to seek and to save the lost. And that Greek word for it is finished is tetelestai, which was used in accountants language during the New Testament times to basically mean that a bill was paid in full. So that song, Jesus Paid It All, 
is real. <laughs> the work that Jesus did to make amends for or atone for the debt that you and I owe God because of all of the righteous or unrighteousness that we've done, all of that is complete. All of that is finished. <sighs> that means that the power of Satan, the power of sin, the power of death is finished. Y'all, that is mighty good news. And for me, that word, it is finished, is especially meaningful because I'm a perfectionist <laughs> to a T. I have these extremely high standards for everything that I do. I am terrified of failure. I dwell on my mistakes all the time. Basically, I try to justify my existence with what I do, right? I try to prove my worth. When in reality, nothing that I do, nothing that I could ever do could win me that worth. It's only because of what Jesus did for me. And the same is true for you. It is finished. His work on the cross is finished. We are free to live righteously by his grace. And if we fall short, there is grace to cover that. There is forgiveness for that by his grace. And so I just want us to reflect on this over the next couple days of this holy week. Think about, one, just what Jesus has done for us. Be mindful of all the wrong things that we've done, but then rejoice. Rejoice that our debt has been paid in full. It is finished. Happy Good Friday. Happy Holy Week. Much love, much care. Bye-bye. I'm Kim Cash Tate, a friend of the table, definite friend of Jesus, here to talk about these last words of Jesus on the cross. Luke 23, 46, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. I want to give you that verse in its entirety, though, because it's telling. And Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. We need to marvel at the majesty and glory of what's happening here. With a crucifixion, after hours of extreme pain and trauma to the body, muscles stretched, heart compressed, lungs collapsing, the cause of death is usually asphyxiation due to a lack of oxygen. Jesus shouldn't be able to utter a single word at this point. Yet it says he cried out with a loud voice. He is still in command. John says in his gospel, we beheld his glory. That's what's on display just with the outcry, Jesus's glory. And what does he cry out? Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. Let's break it down to just the subject and verb. Jesus says, I commit. Once again, we see majesty and glory. You sentenced me to die, nailed me to this cross, but I am king of kings and lord of lords. I'm still in control. I commit. Jesus said this in John 10, 17 and 18. For this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down 
and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my father. Three times Jesus said, I lay down my life. Here on the cross, he says, I commit. He's in full authority. His body will remain on the cross and Joseph of Arimathea will ask permission to bury his body. But his spirit did not remain on that cross. Jesus said, I commit my spirit. To whom? The Father. Let's pause a moment and understand that when Jesus uttered these words, everyone who heard him knew what he was quoting. Psalm 31, 5. It's a Psalm of David where he says, into your hand, I commit my spirit. Jesus added the word father. The Jews wanted to kill Jesus earlier in his ministry when he called God his father. They knew that meant he was making himself equal with God. The Jews didn't believe he was God, so they considered it blasphemy. But Jesus was the word who was in the beginning with God. He was God in the flesh. And on the cross, he makes his deity known once again by saying, Father. And where specifically does Jesus commit his spirit? He says, into your hands. And listen, the sentence does not read, Father, I commit my spirit into your hands. It says, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. Word order is everything here. Emphasis is placed on into your hands. Why? Because whenever there's a reference to God's hands, it's focusing on power. In that same Psalm, Psalm 31, David says, my times are in your hand. When David sinned in Psalm 32, 4, he said, day and night, your hand was heavy on me. Psalm 89, 13, you have a strong arm. Your hand is mighty. Your right hand is exalted. Psalm 102, 25, of old, you founded the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. Jesus could have said, Father, unto you, I commit my spirit. But no, he said, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. I'll experience death on this cross, but I have no worries because my spirit is alive and well in your hands. What an example for us today as we endure trials and tribulations in this world. We may be persecuted, afflicted, but we can commit our spirit into the hands of the Father. Our spirits can stay untroubled in his hands. Jesus said this in John 10, 27 through 29, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. If you are in Christ, that mighty hand of power has got you at all times. The enemy may come for you, but he can't get to you like he wants to because God's got you by his hand. That's the assurance Jesus had when he committed his spirit into the hands of the Father. Then he breathed his last breath. Jesus suffered and died on the cross so that we could have eternal life in him. Have you committed your life to him? Is your spirit alive and well in the hands of the Father? 
May God bless you as you reflect on Jesus' death and resurrection this season.